So, middle of February, I uh, was able to, to go with a team of 20 to Nairobi, Kenya, to work in the Mathari Valley slum. Uh, it's one of the largest slums in uh, Africa, and uh, we'll talk more about that in a moment, but it's just an incredible place where God is working amidst incredible poverty. And so, as, as we work through this, I want to start with a story from the beginning of our, from the end of our trip. Uh, so, we're, uh, we finished our, our mission trip up, we're flying back to the States. And we fly into Doha, Qatar in the Middle East. And we had about a 90-minute layover, and, which is not a whole lot international airport. And so everybody gets where they need to go. And about 30 minutes before our flight is to take off, I get word that Missy's passport is missing. If you've never flown internationally, losing a passport in an international airport in the Middle East is a bad thing, Okay. And so before we knew about this, Missy takes off on her own to find it. Missy's never flown internationally. And so she's on her own trying to figure out where this is. I went up to her husband, Tim, and I said, Tim, do you have Missy's passport? He's like, no, she has it. I said, no, she doesn't. And um, so like panic starts to set in there trying to figure out what's going on. Um, we get a hold of the airport or the airline. They were phenomenal helping us out. They said, we'll get the U.S. Embassy here. They were, the U.S. Embassy was here in five minutes. Said, you get her back here. We'll get her on the plane without the passport. I'm like, oh, thank you so much. But we had no idea where she was. <laughs> so I'm like, this doesn't help us. That's, that's great that you're doing this, but Missy is gone. And we have no way to get a hold of her because, you know, your cell phone doesn't work in other countries. And so uh, without a special plan. And so it was just like you panic setting in and they're starting to board the plane. And so we finally tell the team to get on the plane. We're going to wait here. Tim and I were like, I guess we get an extra time in Doha, Qatar tonight. And so about five minutes before the plane was supposed to, supposed to push back from the gate, Missy shows up. She's got her passport and her boarding passes in hand and the airline's saying, go, 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 get on the plane. And so we're taking off running. We're stalling the security people so we can get everybody on. And we get on the airplane. And so I'm, I finally said, Missy, what happened? And so evidently she went into the bathroom with her passport pouch around her neck and walked out without it. And we're still not sure what exactly happened. But the amazing thing, amazing thing, the airport security got on video and tracked us getting off the previous airplane through the airport, tracked Missy going into the bathroom with her passport pouch and leaving without it. And about a minute later, a guy walks out or a gal walks out with her passport and boarding passes and throws them in the trash. Yeah. So security went over to the trash can, picked them up, handed them to Missy and says, get on it. I'm like... You know, of all the places that you would expect to find a passport and boarding passes, it wasn't in the trash can. And so I, I, I think today, that was just, it was just really vivid to me, that in the same way, all the normal places we start looking for God is not where we find Him. Because, you know, we're not going to find God. Well, we might find God in a trash can because He's everywhere. But we tend to look for God in the big. We tend to look for God in the wow moments of life. And so we're going to take some time over the next several weeks of finding God in plain sight, finding God in the ordinary, finding God through serving, through enjoying life, through our friends and our family. And so today I want to talk about how we find God in the world. And I think we're very fortunate here to be sitting and living in the freedom of the United States. And there are many wonderful things about living here. 
But if we're not careful, we begin to develop this ethnocentric mindset that America is far superior to every other nation in the world, and therefore, they are inferior to us. See, as you, if you travel internationally, you come to know that most people throughout the world are bilingual. They learn multiple languages. And how many languages do most of us know? One, okay? How many of you remember in the late 70s, the United States government trying to transfer to the metric system? Yeah, yeah, that didn't work real well, did it? Um, I did some work on this. There are 195 countries in the world. Guess how many do not follow the metric system? Three. The United States, Burma, and Liberia. I don't know why those all did, but they do. So over 95% of the world is on one system, and the United States is on something different. And I think if, if, if we're not careful, this leaks into our Christianity as well. Because if, if we're honest with ourselves, we have this mindset that God's plan for the world runs through the United States. That we, we believe, we look through this lens that everything that God's doing or going to do runs through the United States. So we, we read in his word about the natural disasters and the earthquakes and all the stuff going to happen. Well, it's happening in the United States. God must be coming back soon. You know, look back at all the U.S. presidents. Every single one of them was an antichrist, weren't they? If somebody along the line said, well, that's, that's who it was. And then if you look back at the people who predicted when Jesus was coming back, like the day, and if you look at them, almost all of them, where does Jesus show up first? The United States. See, we've got to be careful not to read God's word that says, for God so loved the United States that he sent his son to die. It's not what it says. For God so loved the world. And I would venture to say that God is working in other places around the world more than he's working here because they're open to it. We're pretty closed off to God as a society in the United States. And so today, I want us to take a step into looking at where we can find God around the world, where we see him working in and through us. While our team was in Kenya, we worked with the organization Missions of Hope International. It was the, one of the best-led organizations that I've ever had the opportunity to work with. Missions of Hope was founded in the year 2000 by Wallace and Mary Kamau. The Kamaus are native Kenyans, and they planted, uh, God planted within their hearts this love for those in the Mathari Valley slum. In the slum, people live in shanties that are no larger than 100 square feet. They're smaller than most of your bedrooms. They live on $30 a month. And as we're walking through the slum community, kids and adults are picking through trash heaps for food. That's how they're eating. And so understanding the importance of education and understanding education's role in breaking the cycle of poverty, the Kamau started a preschool in the year 2000. It began with 50 students, and the need began to grow. So they added more grades, and they added more schools. And this is amazing to me. The year 2000, one school of 50 students. 2018, they are educating over 16,000 students in over 20 schools, doing amazing work. And to further underlie the importance of education in Kenya, to be able to enter into high school, you have to pass an entrance exam. And so at the end of your three years in middle school, you have to take this entrance exam. The average pass rate in Kenya is about 45%. But if you're from the slums, it's less than 5%. 
And so what Missions of Hope did is they said, Here's, we're going to fix this problem. They went about an hour outside of the city. They built two boarding schools, and they sent their middle school students out there for three years where they don't have to worry about safety issues, food insecurity, and they prepare for this test for three years. And the amazing thing is at the end of those three years, the average pass rate for these kids who were supposed to be less than 5%, Missions of Hope students passed at over 95%. That's amazing. It's amazing. And what they're doing is they're doing it in Jesus' name. They're doing it in Jesus' name. So they're like, oh, we've got the kids covered. Now what do we do with the, the moms and the dads? So for the moms, they've created marketable trades. They've teach the moms how to do beadwork and sewing and hairdressing. They've created a center for the men to learn woodworking and welding. They've created a microfinance program to offer loans to these business people in Jesus' name so they can start their businesses. And what I love about Missions of Hope is they're not about doing handouts. They're not just about handing food out. They're about developing people. Because they want these students to grow and mature and to be able to huge part of society. Not just give handouts and live on that the rest of their lives. This is the, the second team that uh, we've taken to Kenya. and uh, We get on the bus uh, that first day and drive into the slums. And you look out the windows and you see the trash heaps and you see kids in threadbare clothes. And you smell the place. And to what people would see and smell, they would describe as putrid and filthy. But every time we take a new team in there, my eyes tear up because what I see going on there is beautiful. Because what God is doing in the Mathari Valley slum through Missions of Hope is absolutely beautiful. Missions of Hope has changed that place through Jesus' name. And so it's so needless to say, in one of the poorest places of the world, there's an impact being made. I love Kenya, and I love what Missions of Hope is doing to be able to make an impact in people's lives in Jesus' name. And so as we continue kind of looking at how we find God, how we see God, I want you to know that God is alive and well in Kenya. And as we continue diving into this, I want us to, to look into the Bible, because there's a man in the Old Testament that looked for God in one place, but found him somewhere else. This man's name was Elijah. Elijah was a, a prophet of God. And what a prophet's job was to speak to God's people on behalf of God. And so Elijah and God had a very close, close connection. God used Elijah in incredible ways you know, to, to stop rain for three and a half years, to call down fire from heaven, to kill 450 false prophets of, of Baal, the false god. And then he used Elijah to call down rain from heaven again. And so we pick up here in 1 Kings 19. It says, now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done. So a little bit of background. So we have Israel, who is God's you know, destined country. This is his place where he loves. Ahab is the king there. Ahab is a as a wicked, wicked man and did some things that were not, did not follow God. And his wife Jezebel was wicked as well. So they're working together. They do not like what Elijah is doing. So they told Elijah that everything he had done and how he had killed the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like one of them. Elijah, you're dead, is what Jezebel's saying. You're dead. And I love how simple the Bible is. 
Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. You know? If someone wants to kill, you're going to do the same thing, aren't you? You're going to run for your life. So Elijah is running and running and running, and he finally gets to the point where he's saying, God, I'm done. I'm done. I'm fed up with this. I'm fed up with what's going on here. I'm sick of running. I'm done. Just take my life. Just put an end to this for me. And so the Bible says that Elijah lies down and falls asleep. And then it says that an angel wakes him up and gives him something to eat. And we read through that like, oh, okay, that's normal. That's not normal, okay? If you fall into a deep sleep and, and someone taps you on the shoulder and wake up and there's this huge angel floating over you and says, would you like ketchup or mustard on your hot dog, okay? That's not normal, is it? No. But he is taking care of Elijah and he says, I want you to pursue me. I want you to pursue me. And so Elijah takes off running again. And he's got to be wondering, how much longer do I have to do this? Well, he ends up running for 40 days and 40 nights until God tells him to stop. He stops at a place called Mount Horeb, which is also called the Mountain of God. Now, a little side note here on, on history in the Old Testament. Mount Horeb is also found in other places. Mount Horeb, the Mountain of God, was also the place where God spoke to Moses through the burning bush. Mount Horeb is a place where Elijah struck the rock and water came out. Mount Horeb is the place where God gave Moses the Ten Commandments. So there's significance to this place called the mountain of God. So Elijah here is now resting, and he's waiting on God. Picking up in verse 9. The word of the Lord came to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, tore down your altars, put your prophets to death with a sword. I'm the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me too. The Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord. For the Lord is about to pass by. It's interesting that God asked Elijah, what are you doing here? Because I would have said, yeah, you tell me what I'm doing here. You tell me to keep running and running and running. And now I'm stopping here. What are you up to, God? But it's fascinating. Whenever God asks a question in the Bible, he knows the answer. He wants us to see him in it. He wants us to understand what he's doing. And so Elijah pours his heart out to God, saying, I've tried and I've tried. Your followers aren't following me. I'm done. And God simply says to him, I want you to go to this place and wait for me. Wait for me. And when God tells you to wait for him, yeah, I'm waiting for something big, right? I'm waiting for God to show up in a big way. I'm waiting for like a big blimp to come through with a message saying, Brian, you need to do this. Because that's what we look for. We look for God in the big. We like the big. And so what happens here is in verse 11, Then a great and powerful wind tore through the mountains and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face, kind of like an act of humility, being in the presence of God. And he went out and he stood at the mouth of the cave. And I, I'm, I'm sure the fire and the earthquake and the wind all got Elijah's attention. But the Bible says that God was not in them. God was in a little quiet whisper. And that's where he got Elijah's attention. 
See, we, we, we like big, don't we? We, we, we like homes that are, are spacious. We like vehicles that have plenty of room. We like bank accounts that are big that actually like earn interest. You know, we like power tools that have more power. We like the big. And we tend to look for God in the big, don't we? And so let me ask you a question here. Uh, what is the, the world's tallest mountain? I need you to respond. Mount Everest, good. Just under 30,000 feet above sea level. Next question, what's the world's tallest tree? The redwood, exactly, at about 380 feet. All right, who's the world's richest individual? Jeff Bezos, exactly, at $112 billion. That's a one, one, and two followed by nine zeros. That's a lot of money, okay? Let's switch gears. What's the world's smallest mountain? Anybody? Mount Wishproof in Australia at 486 feet above sea level. What's the world's smallest tree? You guys are awful quiet. <laughs> Standing at an astounding less than three inches is the dwarf willow. Who's the world's poorest person? <laughs> you got me. <laughs> You're going to feel a lot better about this here, Rob. The world's poorest person is France, uh, uh, Francis Jerome Crevel in debt, $6.3 billion. Boy, made some bad investments, I guess. I'm assuming you didn't do too well in the second part, did you? The point is, is that we pay more attention to the big things around us. Anything small seems insignificant. We tend to live by the motto that bigger is better. And that's not necessarily true. That's not necessarily how God works. But we, we tend to, to think that, even in the church world. We think bigger is better. Bigger ministries, bigger budgets, bigger attendance, bigger shows, whatever it is, that bigger is better. But sometimes God shows up in the small. Several years ago, Youth for Christ held a, a rally in the country of India and poured a lot of time and energy into creating this. And at the end of their time together, they... they held an opportunity for people to accept Christ as their Lord and Savior. After all they put into this, one person came forward and accepted Christ. And that, that's great. That's one person. But when you put all, you like, oh, you want a lot of people to come in. They had to be disappointed. But when they walk away from that, that one person, that one teenager caught fire for Christ. That one teenager's name is Ravi Zacharias. And if you know Ravi Zacharias, he is the founder of a ministry that defends the Christian faith, one of the uh, Christian faith, one of the most brilliant men that I've ever listened to, and speaks to hundreds of thousands of people today throughout the world. That day, God was working in the small. That day, God made a huge difference. And so just like Elijah, we've got to train ourselves to look for God in the small. And so I, I want us to walk away from this. You know, you know walk away. How, how is it that God wants me to see him today? In the big and the little. And so I want to spend some time talking about how we saw God in the world in our, in our opportunity to go to Kenya. And we saw some incredible things there. We saw God in the creation from elephants and zebras and giraffes and beautiful starry nights. But where we saw God more than anywhere else was in his people. We saw God in people. And so the, the, the first place that we saw people was, was in our team. I saw God in our team. 
It's a group of 20. I loved working with them. They sacrificed a lot. They took vacation time, spent time away from their families. Uh, I really want the team to be well prepared when we hit the ground. So we spent probably 30 to 40 hours in preparation for this trip. But there was one area that I did not prepare for. And so we are in the Philadelphia airport flying to Nairobi, and I hear, Brian Heckler, please report to gate 27. That's never a good sign. <laughs> you don't ever go there and say, hey, we've got a first-class upgrade for you. No, that does, it's always bad news. And so you walk over, and they say, well, we've got a family traveling together, and they've been separated. Would you be willing to give up your seat um, and move to a different seat so they could sit together? Yeah, sure, that's, that's fine. We get on the plane, and I'm looking at my ticket, and I keep walking and keep walking and keep walking and keep walking. I got the lucky very last row on the airplane. <laughs> yeah, right in front of the food prep area and right next to the bathroom. Yes. It's only a 12-hour flight. No big deal, right? So... We take off, and uh, we're over the Atlantic Ocean, and we start hitting turbulence. Like, we're like dropping 10 feet in the air, and multiple times there. The second time we hit turbulence, the bathroom door flies open, <laughs> and there is a woman. <laughs> she is scared out of her mind, <laughs> and we just look at each other. She was, I assume, standing up when the turbulence hit and got thrown down to, to the seat there. And so in this moment, I freeze. Like, what do you do? Like, the seatbelt sign's on, so you can't really get up. And the way those airplane bathroom doors work, they fold in. So you've got to, like, really stretch and try to grab the door to shut it. Well, I didn't know what to do. And so, you know, it's like a train wreck, okay? You kind of want to see what's going on, but you don't want to see what's going on. And so I did the whole neck stretch thing. Check things out and then went the other side just so she thought I was like stretching my neck. But I, I wanted to see what was going on because I didn't know what I could do to help her. And so I've, I've shared the story with friends and most of them said, you helped her, didn't you? No, I didn't help her. <laughs> That would have been weird. And so I let her go. So she sat there for probably 10 to 15 minutes until the turbulence uh, cleared up a little bit. Now, before you judge me harshly, which I know you already are, and I'm okay with that, I did smile at her as she left. Yeah. Just to make things a little more creepy, right? Oh. So yeah, so we hopefully, you know, our, thankfully our team served, had a servant's heart a lot better than I did in that moment, but um, it, it was beautiful to see our team serve. You know, one, uh, our, the mission that we went to, Missions of Hope, their theme this year was servant leadership, and so we did something they've never done before. We, we taught about Jesus washing the disciples' feet, and then we washed the feet of 800 students and teachers while we were there. And it was a beautiful thing to behold because as each student came by, we washed their feet and got to pray a prayer of blessing over each and every one of them. See, that day, God was in a small act of servanthood. I also saw God in our team with, a, with generosity. 
Several of our team members were already sponsoring children at Missions of Hope before uh, we left on the trip. But while we were there, another nine kids got sponsored on the trip. And it was an amazing thing because their sponsorship allows each of these kids to meet their sponsor, but also to be able to provide food and clothing and education and medical care. And it's a, it's a beautiful thing to be able to see. And I'm excited. Uh, coming up in October, we're going to have an opportunity as a church to sponsor hopefully 300 kids from the school that we worked at to provide these kids with what they need. Our generosity makes a huge difference in the lives of these children. So we, we saw God in our team. Another place we saw God is we saw God in their faith. We saw God in the faith of the Kenyans. We, taught an also, we also taught a story about the Good Samaritan. And so I'm, I'm asking all the students from preschool to fourth grade, so, you know, we see the Good Samaritan served the man who was hurt. Who do you serve? So they're raising their hand, and um, they're saying, well, we serve our mom and our dad and our brothers and our sisters and our friends and our neighbors and our teachers. And then they, they raise their hand, and they say, Sir Brian, which I just loved. It was kind of cool. Um, but they say, Sir Brian, we serve the poor. Here are kids who are the poorest of the poor in one of the poorest places in the world, and their faith implored them to serve the poor people. That was their faith implored them to do. And one of the things that wherever we went, they always said, we're trusting God to do this. Because you know what I tend to do? I tend to put my plan together, and when it's good, I say, God, would you please bless what I've done? You know, we do that, don't we? But everywhere we went, we're trusting God to provide this. We're trusting God in this. Their faith was evident. One team member, Tamara, writes this. I've learned to trust God better, recognize his trustworthiness and his presence in my work and in my daily life and trials. For the first time, God is completely in the middle of my decisions instead of being an afterthought or asking for his approval after we decided what we're going to do. We saw God in their faith. And the final place that we saw God is we saw God in their joy. And so we're flying from, uh, from Doha, Qatar into Nairobi, Kenya. We get into the airport in, in Nairobi about midnight. And I got some very special private attention in the customs department um, as we're coming through here. That's another story for another day. But uh, we had a lot of delays. We didn't leave the airport till about 1.30 in the morning. And I'm like, we've got 20 people here. We've got a bunch of bags. I hope, I just hope someone at the guest house has our keys so we can get in and at least rest for a few hours. We pull into the guest house and we were blown away. There's a group of Kenyans waiting for us. We pull in there with our bus. Rachel, one of the Kenyans there, big smile on her face. Welcome to Kenya. Giving hugs to everybody as we, we get off the bus. There's four or five guys taking all of our bags up to our rooms for us. Five minutes later, another guy comes out from the back with fresh juice to give to all of us. We get all of our bags in there. This is two in the morning, mind you. They're like, you all must be hungry. We have a full meal ready for you in the dining hall. That's amazing. And they did it with joy and smiles on their faces. They, they came back at 6 a.m., just a few hours later, to serve breakfast. Hospitality in Kenya was something like I've never seen before. One uh, team member, Holly, wrote this. She says, one of the biggest things I saw when we were there was the joy. Was the joy in people, especially in the children. They are joy-filled no matter the circumstance. 
Whether we walked in the slum community or in the school, you could see joy in their eyes and in their souls. Here we are walking in the slum community. People are picking trash up and eating it. Kids hardly have, you know, their, their clothes are threadbare. This is poor. This is poverty at its worst. But we saw smiles like you would never believe. Smiles all over the place. It was just, it was amazing to see the joy in the midst of their poverty. One of the things that we did during our vacation Bible school is we asked the kids to take popsicle sticks and make a little popsicle stick photo frame. And then we took Polaroid pictures of each of the kids. If you're younger than 30, you may not know what a Polaroid camera is, but it's where they take a picture and it comes out and it gradually develops. And so it was amazing to see these kids gathering around to get their picture taken, but it was so fun for us to watch these kids as their pictures gradually exposed on that little piece of paper. And they were so excited. When that came up, they're showing everybody This is me. This is me. Because realize, when you don't have money to put food on the table, you're not worrying about putting a mirror in your shanty. These kids don't see themselves very often. And so now they have a picture of who they are and was so excited to share that with everyone. One of our team members, Alyssa, writes about an experience she had with the photos she said, a moment that caught my attention and will forever be in my, etched in my memory is the final day in the Mathari Valley. As kids left the safe walls of the schools to head into their homes, one girl was walking with us and she stopped briefly as we walked near her home. She ran over to her mom and with joy handed her mother her picture. The moment that I saw God happened when her mother took the picture from her hands to see her daughter's image, and her attention was locked on the image. Nothing could take her eyes off the image before her, not a crying child, strangers who stopped to watch this all unfold, or the hustle and the bustle of the city around her. All there was in that moment was the gift of the picture of her child, a gift like she has never received. And you could see the emotion take over her face as I looked at our group and the impact that God's love had permeated through us all as we experienced this moment together. Time and time again, we saw joy amidst some of the worst poverty in the world. See, there is no doubt that we saw God working in incredible ways while we were in Kenya. And it's good for us to get outside of our American mindset to see the powerful ways that God is working in our brothers and sisters around the world. And so while we saw this beautiful image of God and the Kenyan people, my hope is today that each one of us leaves this place a little bit slower because it's in our slowness that we can stop and see God. We are so full of hustle and bustle that I think we miss God an awful lot in our days. And so as, as we leave here today, just, just slow down. Slow down and look for God Look for God in your home, your neighbors, your coworkers, schoolmates, whatever it is. Look for God because I think it is through people that God shows us his mercy, his grace, his love, his acceptance. But too often we miss it because we're in such a hurry. Ken Geyer writes this. 
When each of us awakes, it should be a splash of cold water in the face awareness that another day has been given to us. Another day to give gifts and receive them, to love and to be loved, to embrace God through the moments of the day and through these moments to be embraced by Him. He says, much of what is sacred is hidden in the ordinary, everyday moments of our lives. To see something of the sacred in those moments takes slowing down so our lives can live more reflectively. We have to be intentional about it, though, friends. We've got to be intentional about slowing God and looking for God in places where we may not find him, in the big and the small and in plain sight.